Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Nile and I podcast. It is myself, Nile, and Andrea Cleary here. How are you doing, Andrea? I'm good, Nile. How are you doing? Great. I'm great. Um, yes, it's a we have a special guest on today's podcast. Um, we're going to get straight into talking about uh, the topic that everyone seems to be talking about at the moment, which is Spotify. And it's the problematic uh, associations with being on Spotify and uh, Joe Rogan and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And joining us today, I'm 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 delighted to say because I tried to make this happen before. I actually, literally met Liz. Uh, this is so our guest is Liz Pelly, who you may know as the writer who uh, has done a lot of uh, very in depth pieces about Spotify and the issues around Spotify, around playlisting, about uh, gender balance, and all sorts of issues uh, around uh, streaming services, and. Uh, I, I met Liz before, it, like Liz used to live, uh, well, Liz used to actually intern in Dublin for a few months, uh, about 10, 12 years ago, and uh, well, that's how I first got to know her, and uh, is has gone on to be uh, a great and uh, a shining example of, of a music writer and journalist in the modern age, and it's been really great to get her back because uh, we did try and do something about Spotify for the podcast a number of years ago. Last time I was in New York and it did not work out uh, for some reason. So it didn't record. Gremlins. I mean, we haven't had Gremlins for a while. Touch wood. Touch wood. <laughs> I'd, I'd be careful uh, about saying that, actually. Yes, <laughs> I'm just like, before oh, we've uploaded oh, dear. this. Oh, dear. Yes. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah, no ghost um, to the machine for a while. Thank God. Yeah, so Liz joins us to talk about um, probably the question that a lot of people, and certainly a lot of people have been talking to me about in the last week, is like, what is the alternative to Spotify? Are there alternatives to Spotify? Mm. What should we be looking for? And so Liz is going to uh, talk to us about that. Uh, and I think, why, like, Andrea, then why are we talking about this in the first place? What, yeah, what's so been happening? In case anyone has been, like, on holidays, which I think is allowed at the moment um, or just hasn't been checking the news here's a kind of a very quick run through of like what the very what the most current controversy around Spotify is Um, and of course it comes down to Joe Rogan because where Joe Rogan goes controversy will follow Um, 
And we, as we know that that is how Joe Rogan makes his money. Um, Spotify knew that back in 2020 when they acquired the full rights to his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, um, as well as the backdated episodes that went back for 11 years. And they acquired it for $100 million. It was like the biggest deal of its kind and it's gone on to influence kind of um spotify's role in like the podcasting space um in a really really major way like we've had irish um podcasters uh you know signing uh, the two johnnies they signed like a spotify only deal um it's become it's become big um and joe rogan in particular has always kind of garnered controversy he's given platform to white supremacists, conspiracy theorists, and he has spread false information about everything from uh, where forest fires started to the COVID-19 vaccine and, and its viability. But recently, it's vaccines that have kind of drawn the ire of people. Um, Rogan basically, uh, on, over a few different podcasts, uh, stated that young, healthy people didn't need to get a vaccine. Uh, to be clear, they do. Um, he has promoted the use of ivermectin to treat COVID-19. And to be clear, it does not. And it's very dangerous. Please don't do that. And has falsely stated that mRNA vaccines uh, are gene therapy and that lockdowns make, thing, make things worse, uh, both of which are also false. And it's that, that kind of last one there, the mRNA thing went really kind of, that kind of blew up. And it finally came to be that Spotify was um, being looked at in terms of how are we going to, you know, hold the spreading of misinformation accountable. Uh, enter Neil Young um, and, jo- and Joni Mitchell uh, to follow, um, who both in the past week pulled their music from the streaming platform, um, accusing the platform of spreading misinformation and that then led to Spotify adding a content advisory warning to any podcast that discusses COVID-19, which is, I think, the best example of putting a Band-Aid on a a, a bleeding wound, um, as I I can imagine. Um, Chief Executive uh, Daniel Ick said on Sunday, based on the feedback over the past several weeks, it's become clear to me that we have an obligation to do more to provide balance and access to widely accepted information from the medical and scientific communities guiding us through this unprecedented time. The platform has failed to remove any of Rogan's podcast episodes, despite overwhelming evidence that they are contributing to the spread of misinformation and hate. Um, that's the general rundown of what's happened over the past week. Um, this podcast we're recording this on wednesday more might have happened taylor swift might have taken her music off spotify uh, for all we know by the time this podcast comes out but what you and i've been seeing and i'm sure what a lot of other people what what listeners are seeing is um a shift in how we're talking about it i've personally seen a lot of people on um my instagram stories um posting that they have now shifted to tidal um because they pay their artists slightly more, but more still, um, and that they're getting rid of their Spotify accounts. And it's in the news right now, and I'm hoping that it stays in the news. But Spotify's always been a piece of shit, hasn't it, Now, <laughs> <laughs> Here we are, uh, possibly with people listening to us on uh, this podcast on Spotify talking about it. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I yeah. guess I think what's interesting about this, right, is that, you know, Obviously, there's been we did a podcast last year called about broken record and the the how streaming is broken, how the syst- the entire system of 
of uh, the music economics for for artists is, is broken but mm. it's funny that it took like something as divisive as joe rogan for a lot of people to actually take mm. a stand uh, the neil young thing is interesting because in one way you know he's a very established artist who who isn't going to lose an awful lot from taking his music off streaming uh, but in in the flip side he actually is one of the rare artists who can do this because he can mm. take a stand because it won't uh, hurt him financially because that's the, one of the problems about this we uh, our new artists especially like don't want to be seen to be pissing spotify off they don't want to be they want to be featured on playlists they want to get whatever spotify gives them and i and, and that's totally understandable as well but it was interesting that it took like neil young um to strike out of joe rogan and make a stand about uh misinformation mm. as opposed to the streaming service issues or then the royalty mm. issues that are a wider issue and i think you know young made no uh, he actually didn't talk about the poor payment rates at all and and mm. what neil young essentially said to spotify was do you care more about music or making money and spotify mm. said the latter we may yeah. we want to make money. Uh, yeah. Spotify chose audio over music a long, long time ago, and that's very clear from the fact that they've uh, enlisted somebody like Joe Rogan, who they paid a hundred million in order to be on their platform. So, mm. you know, I think it has prompted a lot of people to reflect whether they are comfortable in how Spotify operates, and which is in a way sad because like the royalty rates have been very low for quite a while, and whether mm. you jump from one to another. Does it really answer the question? That is debatable. So I think that's why we got Liz on today to talk about, you know, the wider issues, that the future issues and the future um, uh, ideas that could uh, somehow make their, its way back into a what a music, sustainable music uh, model could be as well. So yeah. that's what we're going to talk to um to Liz Pelly about and uh yeah so I think it is interesting as well the the um Neil Young thing because he obviously has a bit of a bugbear he put out another letter after all this stuff after his music was taken down saying basically giving out about Spotify's uh, audio st- uh, quality <laughs> mm. um I mean I and think he, he even I actually think like sorry go ahead he even just, you know, mentions Amazon, Apple Music and Quo Buzz, which I don't know, I've never heard of, uh, says that it sounds a lot better than the shitty, degraded and neutered sound of Spotify. So he has a bugbear about this and he has in the past, you may remember about 10 years ago, he um, started a high quality, uncompressed streaming service or like download service called Pono, um, mm. which is basically his answer to this audio quality fidelity problem. Um, so he he certainly has that that bugbear as well. So I think that's another part of it. Yeah, I, I think the um, as as Liz um, kind of says in our chat that there is two kind of conversations going on at the moment. One is about having a sustainable model for artists and the other is about the spread of misinformation. I'm personally not surprised that it's the misinformation thing that has, um, you know, brought this into the kind of the mainstream conversation and it meant that it's getting a lot of mainstream coverage because as as much as a sustainable kind of model for musicians is part of our life and our conversations um and conversations with musicians and artists and and creative people day-to-day people aren't you know as kind of impacted by that um the the kind of the consumers of of the of these platforms aren't as impacted by that they're getting their music either way whereas if you take something like misinformation spreading false information spreading potentially 
um, dangerous and life-threatening information on a platform that becomes a a public health concern um, as opposed to just, no, not just, uh, as opposed to bad labor practices, which is something that we have be- become used to seeing and maybe a little bit desensitized to. So I'm not surprised that this is happening. I'm glad that it's happening. And I'm glad that the um, that the topic of um, adequate payment for uh, streams for artists is kind of piggybacking on the, um, it's kind of point two in in the in the current cultural conversation which means that's it's a lot higher than it was before um and i think liz speaks really really great on this um she was an excellent guest um and thank you again liz for sharing all of your wonderful research um with us so will we go to that chat yeah and uh remiss of me of course not to mention our own um subscription model that is patreon.com forward slash nyler nine and you can uh, subscribe from five or a month and help support i think it's all about you know we talk about this a lot supporting independent publications and outlets and that's what we are and i think it's way more important now as uh you know as the the numbers start to dwindle in terms of uh and uh, the outlets for on radio, whether it's somebody like John Barker, whose show has uh, gone as of this week, the Totally Irish show. Yeah. Um, and there's other, many other examples in the last few years. So um, look, so you, you need to support the artists directly and, and publications like ourselves who also are part of the conversation. So that's patreon.com for slash nine. So yeah, we'll go over to uh, chat to Liz Pelly. Certainly a lot of people I know are having that uh, conversation about, okay, I don't like Spotify. What is my, one of my alternatives? It feels a bit more like that argument or that uh, thought process is a bit more mainstream suddenly um, for a lot of people. So what is your perspective on, on all of this stuff that's been happening in terms of how people are reacting to, do you feel that as well? Do you feel any shift in terms of uh, people reacting negatively to, um, well, I guess, I guess start with Spotify. Yes, it certainly has been incredible to see the surge of interest around these topics over the past week or so. It's kind of unreal in some way to see how mainstream a conversation that has been happening um, for years now has become. I think that in some ways... Uh, There are aspects of the conversation that are misguided. There are some missed opportunities that are happening. There are some interesting and important things that are being talked about. So um, it's sort of a mix. But when it comes to the crux of the interrogation of Spotify that I'm sort of hearing a lot of people have right now, it seems like there's two main topics that are coming up, which um, is uh, not too surprising. On one hand, people are very concerned about misinformation and they're concerned about um, 
Spotify's platform power and the uh, ways in which they are sort of abusing the narrative that they are a platform and not a publisher, um, kind of like an extension of a conversation that's been going on for years and years and years about other platforms like Facebook and Twitter and YouTube. Um, this isn't the first time that these topics have come up. Um, personally, like I wrote an article two years ago about Spotify's shift into podcasting for the baffler called podcast overlords, where I was sort of posing some of these questions. Also, what does it mean for I mean, business model aside, um, like what does it mean for Spotify to be positioning itself as a media company? Does it have any breaks or functions in place to um, do anything about misinformation and hateful content on the platform? And, you know, the answer obviously is that their preparation for this moment um, was insufficient. And in some ways, like, I think they definitely saw this coming and just didn't care because they're a publicly traded corporation whose responsibility is to their shareholders and to getting new subscribers on uh, drawing more advertising and, um, you know, uh, selling their products to Wall Street. Um, So, so there's that whole conversation, right, about like misinformation and platform power. And then um, at the same time, there's a lot of artists um, who are trying to kind of like sort of seize this moment and shift the conversation to being less about, um, you know, the, what is kind of like perceived as a sort of like culture war um, and shift the conversation towards um, labor and the treatment of musicians on streaming services that artists have been talking about for years and years and years to this point, um, just sort of also remind people like, yes, it's absolutely an extremely important thing to be talking about um, misinformation and the fact that streaming companies are valuing their own profit and engagement over human lives. Um, that obviously is extremely important, but also there are ways in which these companies have been um, you know, negatively affecting musicians on a material basis for years as well. And that also has um, really dire consequences for the people whose work goes into making it so that these products can exist. Um, so there's sort of like a misinformation media um, platform responsibility conversation and music and labor conversation that is going on. Um, and I, it, it does make sense because like when you think about streaming services, um, the the big conversations always sort of come back to, you know, the listener's experience and the musician's experience. Um, streaming companies like Spotify sort of position themselves as these two-sided marketplaces where they have a product that they're selling to listeners and a product that they're selling to artists. Um, and I think it makes sense that you would see kind of these big explosive conversations around both sides of that equation happening at the same time. Do, do, do you see a link between these two conversations? Because I suppose there's the, the, the responsibility of the platform is inextricably linked in both the kind of labor practice um, issues on the artist side of things and also on the misinformation side of things. Spotify seems to have been able to wiggle its way out uh, kind of following um, in in the footsteps of of a platform like YouTube has been able to kind of wiggle its way out of that. And on the other side of it, it's been able to kind of wiggle its way out of um, confronting uh, not paying artists like a, a living wage for kind of, you know, it's 
being the scaffold of of their of their uh, model. So do you, do you see w- uh, a link between those two things or is there a central kind of problem that you've identified with Spotify um, that kind of spider webs out into all of these other problems that we kind of find with them as a platform? Uh, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but for the past year or so, a lot of my own writing about streaming in Spotify has sort of focused on not just thinking about as consumers, like what more ethical choices can we make within the marketplace to support artists better or to um, try to kind of like figure out the lesser of two, like which of these streaming services pays artists 0.0 cents more than the other one. (laughs) But instead thinking about like how we sort of um, uh, think about the bigger picture and how we could like, in addition to all of those, doing all those things to kind of like hold these corporate powers to account, um, try to rein in the exploitation of artists, um, not let them to continue getting away with uh, all these exploitative practices, but also think like, how do we extract ourselves from this uh, corporate model in general and just try to kind of like think about the bigger picture of not just like music, but arts funding. Like how do we um, move towards models where art is being valued as a public good. Like um, I think with streaming and Spotify, you're sort of looking at like a very small aspect of like a much larger problem, which is that, um, you know, the music industry has always exploited artists and devalued music and art. Um, so, you know, they're not like new problems. They're um, old problems playing out in new ways. Um, so I wrote this article last year called Socialized Streaming that was kind of thinking about um, at least like in the U.S., like what would it look like to have a nationalized taxpayer funded streaming service? Um, and, you know, also have been looking into for a while now and lots of other people have been talking about this, like the idea of a um, cooperatively run streaming service where artists can be involved in the governance of the platform. There's this cooperatively run streaming service called resonate that has existed since 2015. Um, And then I've also been doing a lot of research into public library run music streaming programs, um, which are pretty popular across the U S and Canada. So um, these are kind of just different ways of, thinking about the role that digital tools play in our lives, um, our sort of like collective responsibility to consider music as a public good and to like really think about, you know, um, the ways in which we fund and support art. Um, Yeah. I loved reading that piece um, regarding the, the, um, particularly the, the the library funded streaming services because it kind of start is it right that it, it started in Chicago um do I have that right or or there was oh so there, um, there was a particular the, library that 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 you kind of began the piece with that was in Chicago and they yeah. were like oh we have to do it on a small scale before we can do it on a big scale what I loved r- reading in 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 that piece was that libraries just because of who the, who they're run by and what their form is they just instinctively shared it with each other because that's what libraries do because they're great <laughs> and and then it got it got kind of taken up on, on on a more kind of widespread scale which was amazing yeah so in that article i had sort of like charted the um 
history of some of these library run shooting projects. And it's interesting, you know, like they, um, for over a decade now, um, there are libraries across the U S and Canada where librarians themselves have kind of spearheaded these projects. And they've sort of been like, um, uh, built from like the, through libraries. Um, and the instance you're talking about in Chicago is really interesting. So there's, um, a musicians union that formed at the beginning of the pandemic called the union of musicians and allied workers. And in Chicago right now, there's actually a group of musicians, part of the union of musicians and allied workers, Chicago chapter that are, um, like exploring and trying to organize around proposing an idea for this to the library. So I thought that was really interesting because it was an example of like, um, whereas lots of these projects historically have come from started in the library, this is like artists sort of like banding together to sort of um, try to kind of like demand it of um, mm. their sort of like local libraries and public services um so so it's kind of yeah it is sort of interesting and i know it's kind of like a big conversation and could seem really disconnected from the subject at hand which is like people trying to figure out in the exact short term like what they could do to make more ethical decisions or sort of like stop putting their 9.99 a month into this company mm -hmm. that they don't believe in but I, I think that you know i my my main response to this this question is like you know people absolutely should like you know try to figure out ways to spend their 9.99 a month that they're more comfortable with and that they feel are more in line with their values. Like whether that means like looking at the decimal points of pennies and figuring out one that um, is where there's more penny fractions going to musicians. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I also would just kind of like question people to sort of like, not only think about that, but like rethink their entire relationship to the concept of paying 9.99 a month for this huge catalog of quote unquote all the music in the world and like whether or not that system is truly sustainable and like um you know there's uh other ways of thinking about our relationship to music and i would i would challenge people to kind of like push their um reckoning in this moment like even further um if for people who have like never even considered maybe like taking that 9.99 a month and just like buying an album on Bandcamp instead i think yeah. that that is um also, it's so interesting because you, like we're we're the last generation that really remembers what it's like to um, spend money on like a CD, for example, and that just being the only new thing that you can listen to that week. I think we've all grown really comfortable um, in the idea that we have this expansive, like and like seemingly infinite uh, access to music, which as music lovers. And I, I think a lot, a lot of people's kind of resistance to leave the platforms like Spotify or Apple or Tidal or, or, or whatever it might be is, you know, the fear that they're not going to discover new music. Um, but I have been having conversations with myself and kind of telling myself, you kind of did okay before. Like, and it's not as if I'm listening to like all of this new music all of the time on like I'm, I, I think I'm probably still only listening to like the same 10 albums all the time anyway, when, when I'm not kind of actively trying to discover new music anyway. So I don't know how, how we're going to break that cycle without kind of breaking what it is that we've now decided listening to music and being a music fan is, which is more like collecting new bands um, and pu putting them on, on a playlist as opposed to 
having new bands and owning and and supporting their work i don't know if you feel that way niall yeah i think that's a i think that's the first time we're really having that discussion about the access of Mm. of um that music now because it was kind of like the monolith and that's all you could do whether you chose a different flavor of the monolith was the same thing you're still getting the access to and i think what people what most music fans who are casually streaming music are like just don't want to miss out on their favorite artists or a big artist or like, Oh, I can't listen to that because it's not on this. So it, it ends up, that's why Spotify ends up being the big one or Apple music. People, if people want to pick that one, you know, it's just like, they are, they, the music is there and that's why people mm. go to it. But you know, it, I did see a tweet like last week by Ross Grady said, I love that people are looking for alternatives to Spotify and I don't know how to explain to them that it's never been ethical or sustainable to expect to have unfettered access to the entire history of recorded music for $10 a month. Yeah. You know, and then I like, that's the fundamental point here is that it's mm. never been, we've never been, that's never been sustainable. It's not sustainable now. It never has been sustainable. Um, so I think that's why now people are asking those questions about the alternatives of, of what that is. Yeah. Something like, Joe Rogan might help um, accidentally spur that on, but it just points to, okay, I'm giving my money to a company that doesn't value musicians, artists, mm. but would rather, it's an audio company. Like it's a company that now is focused on audio as opposed to musicians. Yeah, Liz, when I was reading so, so some of your articles before we jumped on the call, something that I kind of noticed and, and re- reading around it as well is that there seemed to be, and I wonder if you could explain it a little bit to us, a shift in what Spotify's kind of business model was when it acquired like Gimlet, um, when, when it started becoming a podcast platform, um, I was reading a, a little bit about how it's moving into the kind of the content farm sort of side of things as well which is something that I wasn't that familiar with because I'm not a playlister on Spotify I don't listen to the stuff that Spotify gives me so I've kind of missed out on all of that but um obviously a huge part of the people that listen to Spotify do kind of click on those you know curated playlists um could you tell us a little bit about that the 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 impact that kind of acquiring podcasts and moving into content farm uh you know curation or creation rather um it impacts the model overall. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I guess maybe a more fundamental question to start with could be like, why did they get into podcasting or why did they buy these companies? And um, there's a few different reasons to my knowledge. Um, one being that they are, you know, these streaming companies are always trying to expand their subscriber base. And um, this idea of being able to sign on exclusive podcasts um, is a way of increasing their subscriber base. Um, uh, That has lots of implications, not just like the ones we're seeing now with how that changes their responsibility as a publisher, but also for the podcasting ecosystem also um, something that I wasn't even really fully aware of until I started researching um, Spotify's entry into the podcasting space is the extent to which, you know, podcasting has been historically like fundamentally sort of built on this idea of like an open ecosystem where podcasts are like um, freely available across all platforms and um, easy to, uh, find and accessible and this kind of like in some ways really, uh, you know, pushes, um, 
audio storytelling into this more like very closed off um, ecosystem, which has a lot of consequences. Um, so they're trying to get new subscribers onto their platform. Um, there's also an element um, having to do with advertising. You know, even if you have a paid subscription on Spotify, um, you'll still hear advertisements on podcasts. So in some ways, it's sort of like a way to um, insert new forms of advertising onto the platform. Um data collection. I mean, I think something that has been like really overlooked in the current kind of ongoing conversations this past week or the extent to which, you know, whether you're on Spotify or you're deciding you're going to cancel Spotify and switch to um, another platform, um, there's always the, the question of surveillance and privacy, which I think is like really important to um, consider and sort of like keep front of mind as a core issue. Um, of uh, the way that streaming services not just sort of like surveil us and collect and sell our data, but also um, the effect it has on us as listeners. Um, so, so those are you know some of the the reasons I think why they got into the podcasting space, and also um, you know uh, when they have podcasts on the platform. Spotify is not like paying royalties to podcasters. So in some ways it's a way to have more audio content on their platform that uh, lowers their expenses because if people are coming to the platform and listening to podcasts, they're not like, paying out as many royalties um, to artists. Uh, and um, also it, at least at first, it seemed like in addition to like acquiring podcasts and signing on all these exclusives, they were also creating their own podcasts in um, Spotify studios, which they actually just shut down like quite recently. Um, but it seemed to kind of be this way to have content on the platform that they had full ownership over and they kind of could like have more control over. Because ultimately, that's kind of what these platforms are trying to do. They're trying to um, control their product as much as possible. Um, so that's uh, also another um, big factor into it. And then, you know, in the article that um, uh, I wrote a couple of years ago, I also was really looking into kind of like the consequences of not just sort of podcast playlists, but like, um, you know, that question of, control and management of our listening environment that these very powerful platforms um, have it. I think the, the move into podcasting is just sort of like an extension of that to kind of like have more control over what types of habits people are developing in their listening. Like what are, what are people waking up every day and like clicking on when they, um, you know, sit down to like do some work and have some music playing in the background. And, but it's, it's um, deja vu in a way, isn't it? Because I mean, we've, we've kind of already, we've had this conversation about YouTube and its algorithms and the impact that that can have on not just misinformation, but I mean, like really radicalizing people into very, very dangerous situations. And I think what what I find so frustrating about what I'm seeing with Spotify right now is that the, like like you said, the, the, the same excuse of them being a publishing platform is definitely being used and very kind of um, tactfully so because they know that it works. But it is concerning 
once you bring, because I mean, a, a, a recommender system for music isn't going to do anything dangerous. It's just going to maybe narrow your music taste a little bit. But a recommender system for a spot for a podcast, rather, where they're not taking any uh, responsibility or control over the content in that is actually a very scary thing to think about, um, especially when we think about how much trust people put into their favorite podcasters. Like Joe Rogan obviously comes to mind being like one of the biggest podcasters in the world and also being, um, <laughs> you know, w w one of the most influential people in the world, um, which is kind of a, a, a terrifying thought. So it is de deja vu-ish because we know what these systems and these recommender systems and these playlists can do. And yet we're just seeing it again on another platform. Yeah, like isn't it weird that you you know you like you alluded to Liz the it's like Spotify almost like they weren't really prepared for this <laughs> like what they really should have been because mm. like he's been saying this stuff for a while and it's only a matter of time before you know someone took a stand. It gets interesting that you know I I, I don't know where that's going to go on that and whether that actual whole story you know obviously Neil Young is a very established um artist who has made his money and while there are implications for him taking his entire catalog off of a streaming service like spotify um he has made that money and 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 he has he is a comfort where new artists are i loved what um in your article actually about the the libraries i was you you had a, a interviews with uh Rolly pemberton uh cadence weapon he was talking about you know how the streaming companies are like the wizard of oz like we don't really know what they are or who's mm -hmm. in charge but we do know with daniel Eck, um <laughs> like that he is the face of it and you know over here we're like we can see him sitting in in uh football stadiums at arsenal and uh uh within the at the emirates stadium like wanting to buy the the team you've seen him investing in in a defense startup which for a lot of artists who are looking, you know, we're, we're are looking to get more money or make more money, especially in the last couple of years in terms of just a living wage, you know, that kind of rubs people up the wrong way. I guess, is there, you know, there is the other system then rather than the system that Spotify uses for paying out um, artists and a lot of the other ones use. There's a user-centric system. Is that anything, is that any way of uh, addressing this, do you think, in terms of, the people rather than the misinformation part, but the actual streaming royalties part. Do you think that is any way useful? My take on, on user centric is that, you know, there are, um, uh, there's an argument that it would be helpful for musicians. There's an argument that things would end up playing out, um, the same ways they always have. But, um, uh, I know that like a lot of musicians unions have been calling for this for a long time. Um, so my sort of, take on it has been to sort of follow the demands of musicians unions. Like if there's tens of thousands of musicians saying that this is something that would be beneficial to them, I think it's uh, something that we should try out. So, and also, you know, um, uh, I, I think it, you know, it's one of these things that just like, fundamentally seems to make sense so for maybe for people who aren't as um uh who aren't unaware so it's like currently streaming services like spotify pay on a pro rata basis so it's the amount that your an artist is paid isn't per stream it's a percentage in comparison to 
how their number of streams stacks up in the total pool. So it's this very sort of, um, uh, it's, it's very much a model where pop stars and celebrities um, benefit um, and smaller artists uh, are devalued. Um, and user-centric would be a model where if I pay $10 a month and all I listen to is, you know, no name, my $10 would go to no name. Um, uh, and there are some services that have been, I know like SoundCloud has been um, sort of experimenting with, I think they're calling it like fan powered royalties. And yeah. I know title is um, experimenting with something um, Deezer as well so. has a say stated a support for user centric payments, but I don't think they've instituted, and I'm not sure why. If they're saying they support it, but anyway. Yeah, mm-hmm. I always have thought that Resonate's model is really interesting too. I know that they're not as popular uh, a service, um, but they yeah. But tell us about use- it because I think people are interested. Yeah. In so in addition to Resonate being this cooperative music streaming service where musicians whose workers on the platform have a, a vote in decision-making and can attend an annual meeting and actually be involved in um, the governance of the platform. The model is also something that they call stream to own. So um, it's sort of like a version of user centric where instead of paying like an X amount of money per month, you sort of, top up your account. And then as you stream, um, small amounts of money go towards the artists that you're streaming. And once you've streamed it nine times, um, it's as if you've bought the MP3 and then you own it. And then you don't have to like pay every time you stream it again. So it's kind of like a, almost like a hybrid of user centric and buying songs on Bandcamp in a sense. Um, and to me, that kind of makes sense because that way it's like, you know, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, Sometimes I think people feel that uh, if they um, like the if you're paying each time you stream something, maybe people wouldn't be as like experimental or take chances with stuff that they're listening to. But because eventually you um, own the song, it's kind of, I think, evens out. And yeah, it's just interesting to, um, you know, it's uh, not a type of model that I've seen like anyone else sort of put forward. Yeah, and that's interesting as well, because, I mean, I guess, like, is it literally the only only alternative we're talking about other than, you know, whether it's a, the American Music Library or any other streams? Like, they just basically seem to operate off either user-centric, that pool system, or that hybrid. Or then there's obviously, like, Bandcamp has obviously had a huge success in the last couple of years, but... um, And in terms of, like, supporting artists directly and... You know, I mean, like, ultimately, is the answer to all of this just like give, give your if you want if you want an artist to exist, you have to give them money. <laughs> you have to give them money directly, and that's the only way this is ever going to work. Like, yeah, I mean, def- definitely, like, personally, um, I am a big proponent of people rebuilding their MP3 libraries, and that's kind of one of my preferred ways of. Um, listening to collecting music other than obviously having a record and cassette collection. Um, but MP3s and buying stuff, whether it be on Bandcamp or, you know, also most artists and labels, you can purchase MP3s directly from them through their website. Um, there's other 
other ways as well. So I'm a big. Like I bought a uh, I bought a Womack and Womack LP off Discogs last week because I've been listening to it. Uh, on a stream site and it was one dollar fifty one euro fifty um from discogs but i bought a lot of other stuff but i wanted to own it you know it again but no and it also mm. isn't one of those things that like it's not one of those albums that the like has got a big reissue or anything like that so it was just kind of like okay i want to own this but mm. the only option really to own it was to you know i wanted the physical thing but it was very very cheap but it was like an old album from 1988 you know so like that's how I do it. Generally, I would like buy the record or yeah. Know, I think I, I yeah. think what would be, what would be great is if there was. So I I think there's there's kind of there's people like us who like having record collections and who, you know, to to think about where money is going in terms of supporting music, and then there are people who use Spotify just to listen to music and they don't think too much about it and music isn't maybe as big a part of their lives. It's not their job. It's not what their kind of primary interest is. And there's this kind of chasm in the middle of kind of accessibility for those two things. Like these, these people mightn't necessarily go home and put on a record. And it's, I, I think if, if we could see something that like, um, crosses the divide between, you know, cassette collectors and people who listen to the top 40 on Spotify in terms of accessibility and ease of use, it would be great um if if those kind of more hybrid models were were more readily available for people because you know yeah. i'm not expecting anyone to give up their top 40 um and i'm also you know i'm not i'm also not telling people to go like if you want to listen to your if you want to listen to the new drake album you have to go to the the record shop and like buy it or whatever you know so it's yeah, I think for for me, it's about bridging the gap between those two things, um, which is really difficult to think about. Yeah, it's a moment for people to really sort of like take stock of the the way that they support musicians, but also the way that they um, discover music and whether or not they're doing that in ways that are active or passive, how to incorporate more sort of active um, music discovery into their media consumption. But, you know, I think something else that is a connecting dot here as well is that, you know, the big ongoing conversation about Spotify as a media conglomerate and platform responsibility, it's like, it's a media issue, right? And I think it's also a moment where people should really reflect and think about like, um, you know, what is the consequences of, um, you know, media conglomerates more generally, like, consolidating power. Um, and one of those is that it stamps out the, you know, vibrancy of local media and independent media. And I think it's also kind of really related for people to, in this moment, sort of like zoom out and to think about the local and independent radio stations, either in their community or online that they um, care about, because uh, you know, that also is like when we're talking about accessibility, like local FM college community, independent radio and online radio is an extremely accessible way to learn about um, independent music. And those are independent media institutions that could always need and use support um and I, th- I think it's like it really does connect to this it's kind of like a media justice conversation you know in the grand yeah. scheme of things um so personally i also am a fan of 
uh, being like, you know, take your $9.99 a month and set up a recurring donation to like your favorite online radio station or like local community station. And like, um, you know, if they're, if you're just looking for something to kind of like put on during the day while you're working or something and like discover some new music, like that is a, a great way as well. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting you bring up the radio actually, because like we have two examples here, even in the last week, you know, um, a, a very prominent, um, Irish music show called totally Irish, uh, it was taken off the air last week after 12 years. Um, <clears throat> And that's uh, really terrible. And in general, there's been a very much a dirt of, of um, Irish music broadcasting as uh, larger corporations take over the uh, radio stations. Um, and that's reflected in the programming. But also, yeah, there is a, like, we ha- do have a, a couple of examples of things that are positive, like this Dublin Digital Radio, which is a community-led uh, radio station that does exactly that. Like it is, you know, community-led um, so there are examples, there are places to look for things like that as well, you know, and then like, you know, we have a public broadcaster as well, but you know, I mean, they have improved in the, in the last few years of, of, uh, showing, um, of supporting Irish music for sure. But then, you know, there's a lot of talk at the moment about, you know, different shows being moved around and maybe losing some more outlets. So then again, the local kind of the Irish music scene is uh, again in a deficit in terms of the places that it can find, it can, it can be shared, it can be heard, it can be broadcast as opposed to like narrow cast to one person as well. So, which is obviously, you know, a harder thing for an artist as well. So, and that is the wider thing. And I think there's, there's bigger conversations at the moment about. Um, but that's, that's just seeing the impact of that kind of. Yeah. But I was just going to say the, the bigger impact of, you know, those conversations from the pandemic of the last couple of years is that, we are now in Ireland talking about universal basic income for artists. And that is the first time that's really like, it's, it's been on the cards for a while, but it looks like it's really going to happen in the next couple of years. Um, and that's because there's been a recognition that actually this needs to happen because <laughs> there is literally no alternative, you know, for, for an artist to have a living wage. Um, so I think that's really interesting because we are moving in that way. Um, mm. after a, quite a number of years of having very little, um, you know, in terms of opportunity. So, yeah, I think there yeah. are, that's our ways we can, we can, we, that is maybe this is being addressed in a way, you know. It's a really important part of the conversation. And I'm, I'm really curious how that came about in Ireland, like who put the idea on the table and fought for it, because I feel like, you know, it's this kind of this bigger conversation about the need for public funding in the arts that I think um, encompasses like the need for public funding for things like, um, you know, subsidized streaming services, uh, local media, um, independent media outlets, but, you know, also in for artists to be able to just like cover their living expenses and continue doing what they're doing. Like these are important conversations that mm. need to happen. Do you know like about how it came about in Ireland? Um, I think it's been, it's been, I was talked about in a number of times over the last like 10 or 15 years. Um, and I can't really tell you exactly where it came from. And it was one of the ideas, mm-hmm. but I certainly there's a national campaign for the arts here who've been very instrumental in um, a, a lot of prominent arts people in Ireland who are actually, you know, talking to the government directly and who are representing the industry and have been doing that throughout the pandemic as well. And that is one thing actually that has been quite good in terms of the last couple of years. A lot of people who had never had to talk to the government uh, officials before are now talking to uh politicians about 
the industry. Like we've we've had here two years of where it was very clear that even though we have a minister for arts and culture, that um, the government as a whole didn't really understand what the live entertainment industry was and what that entailed. And therefore, we had a number of issues in terms of some of the restrictions and how they were applied to the industry that just made no sense. Um, so I think it's we a, a, it's a longer thing. a couple of from ministers <laughs> who kind of mentioned things like um, eating e- eating in uh, like nightclubs and stuff like that, where it was just like, oh, you you haven't been to a nightclub since 1978. Like, <laughs> but wider than that, like we had these whole yeah. pilot events last year, which were, you know, like, oh, we we're going to pilot these events for li- for the return of live music, which were just not based in reality at all whatsoever. Mm. And everyone was standing around in like pens or pods and it just made no sense. And they didn't yeah. do anything with the data. They didn't even generate any data from these um, events. So it was just pointless PR exercise. And everyone thought that at the time, but was hopeful because there was literally nothing else that we could pin our hopes on in terms of mm. the return of live music so we kind of hoped that they weren't just bullshitting us but obviously mm. they were but it does seem <laughs> now that um enough people have made enough noise that they're at least listening to artists and and like even beyond just musicians like the the that that, that campaign for a living wage would also um help out like novelists and playwrights and kind of the more the kind of broader arts world so yeah, a, and an, also, an, I mean, an, another should way that say, could like support um, is to get behind campaigns like that as well. Yeah, we've had a history of um, actual uh, support of creative artists in Ireland with the Aestana, um since 1981. So there is um, noted kind of members who who basically get a, essentially a living wage every year. They they uh, would incorporate like visual artists, literature. <laughs> Uh, musicians, architects, choreography. Um, so there's a big list. A.S. Donna is what that's called. That's an arts council funded thing. So so we do have a precedent in terms of uh, what that happens. I think what, what happens now is like how that's going to shake out in terms of the universal basic income and who, apply, who can apply for it and who is what the criteria is. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's where the next um, probably crux of the the thing is, you know, whether it'll support a band like Pillow Queens, for example, who were doing quite well. And they said, you know, I mean, if we had this basic income, then we could focus on our career and growing that career as opposed to having to do a part-time job or whatever it is. So that's where it kind of makes the biggest difference, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in a wider way, we're actually looking at changing our licensing laws, which are very restrictive in terms of events. Anyway, so... There's a whole process of uh, slowly, a slow upheaval happening in terms of modernizing. Uh, I, I would be very licensing. interested to see how streaming um, comes into that conversation. And I would really like to see it come into that conversation. Um, because even just seeing things like the the more kind of local library initiatives that you were writing about, Liz, um, it's hard to uh, imagine that it would be that difficult for a country the size of Ireland to implement some like if if in the states it can be implemented on like a kind of a state by state basis or something you know Ireland's very small and and our our kind of our our libraries have a kind of a a centralized kind of you know governing system and it's it would be difficult to imagine that that would be difficult to implement I think yeah yeah Yeah, I think it's um in some ways, I think that, you know, the conversation around streaming often kind of gets put in this box of being a cultural conversation. But 
the past few years, I think it has been really clarified for a lot of musicians and people who are involved in music and people who work in music, the extent to which a lot of these conversations that we've been having for so long are actually conversations that have so much to do with politics and labor and seeing people sort of like um, organize and get involved in um, the kind of process of like pushing this more into the realm of being um, a, a political fight. I think is really important and it does seem so overwhelming in the United States because our funding for the arts is um, so abysmal and has been for so long, which is I think in some ways why I think it makes a little bit more sense for people to be thinking about this, like on a local level here um, first at least. Um, but yeah, it would be incredible to see projects like this take off in Ireland. I think it would provide like a really um, uh important like model for other places too yeah so, could be and i think as well <laughs> you know i mean the art we talked about like we talk a lot about community and you know uh, especially people power lately in terms of um having to address the uh, political issues that are clearly uh on display for a lot of people in terms of planning or in development and all that kind of stuff and licensing but yeah, I think there is like something to be said there for like you talked about libraries and 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 Rowley, uh, Caden's weapon talks about that in uh, in that article as well. He said, uh, "I love the idea of libraries as venues, recording studios, even just using a public space as a hangout." And the really important thing about libraries is that they're free public spaces; they don't ask anything of you. And here, like we've had a lot of cultural spaces taken away from us. We've had public spaces taken away from us in the last number of years, and it's not getting any better. And so. I think there is an opportunity certainly to reimagine what a public space like a library could be and i think mm. andre actually you are you are close to a very nice library aren't you i like, love the library i go very often um i don't actually rent i used to rent uh movies from the library um and i don't really as much anymore because i'm now a slave to basically all of the platforms um and uh but i like you you can get music at the library too that's that actually down in in um dl or the the, the dunleary library has a really really great collection of music and i think you can i think you can stream like audiobooks and things like that so i don't know why like maybe maybe there could be something where they could where they could um look into streaming music but um Libraries are great. I, I love the library. Yeah, we <laughs> use the audio. My granny, my granny, my my mother gets my granny the uh, the audiobooks from the library, the street. Yeah, and the she it's, them, it's so. a bit like like they're free. You know, they cost yeah. like sixteen ninety nine on Amazon. To yeah, buy but what's audio. the catch, Andrea? What's the catch? There's no catch, Nile. <laughs> There's no catch. The library is the best. Sorry, I lie up when I talk about the library. <laughs> yeah, and the interesting thing too about a lot of the library streaming projects that I researched and pe folks I spoke to who are involved in them too, is that at least um, among some of these projects that exist in the US and Canada, there's really this sense that a lot of these libraries are envisioning their local music streaming projects, not just as these digital offerings, like, you know, a lot of them were really quick to be like, it's not just Spotify for libraries. Like these are digital public spaces where we bring in musicians and we hire them to be curators of these projects. And then they're involved in kind of like helping, um, you know, uh, with the process of 
building out mixes and um, deciding who's going to be on the platform and organizing events and kind of think of these more, not just as like, um, yeah, like digital uh, offerings, but also as kind of like um, helping artists like connect with each other. And um, I heard some really interesting proposals for, um, you know, the library kind of being this space that helps musicians connect with other people in the community who are looking to like hire musicians for different um, events and opportunities and stuff. Um, And I, I, yeah, there, I think there's a lot of potential um, there and everything you said about public space is like so important and relevant as well. Like even beyond libraries, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm really glad to see the conversation take this direction because to me so much of the conversation that is happening, um, you know, people, obviously music is something that is really personal to a lot of people. And I think people get really like, um, passionate when anything having to do with the way that they relate, um, to music is like, questioned or um deemed uh problematic or changes or um you know people feel like a really sense a really um intense sense of like closeness to the music that is important to them which is why i think it's like all the more important that in this moment we sort of like really all kind of like take stock of our relationship with music and like whether or not these like yes, whether or not it's serving musicians, but also like whether or not having this kind of like passive lean back corporate managed relationship with music, whether it be through Spotify or something that's paying like 0.2 cents more is really like the way that we want to relate to music and like have it in our lives or would it be more fulfilling to kind of like have more direct and more like in-depth relationships with the musicians we care about and also like the musicians in our community. All right, Liz, that's great. Thanks so much. Um, Anything else you want to add, Andrea? Um, Or or ask Join your library. It's free. (laughs) Um, Check out the um, articles from Liz that we were reading beforehand. I think we will be able to link them. Um, They are really, really fascinating, and I found them very um, inspiring in terms of thinking about what could be done here. Um, Because whenever I see initiatives happening, um, the US especially, I just can't help but think how small we are in comparison and therefore how much easier it's going to be. <laughs> so um, so yeah, do do check those out. But thank you so much, uh, Liz. It was really enlightening chat. Thank you so much for speaking with me. And also like if anyone listens to this um, who is not familiar with the universal basic income uh, proposal for musicians in Ireland, I would definitely think that everyone should check that out as well. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, it's basicincome.e is uh, a, a website actually where you can learn more about it. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's all cool. it's all very um, it's all very present at the moment, mm. which is great. You know, so uh, an opportunity to to reimagine how things uh, could be seen as we've had things shut for so long. So mm. there's a bit of there's definitely some positivity in that front. So. Right, that was uh, Liz Pelly and 
delighted to finally get uh, Liz on the podcast. Been meaning to do it for a long, long time, and uh, a lovely guest. And I'm sure we'll, we may talk to her again at some point as well. So that's it from us this week. Um, I hope that you have some uh, information, armed with some information now in terms of the alternatives to streaming. Obviously, like you know. The biggest thing is really you need to support the artist directly. And I think it, what was interesting during the pandemic, I remember like casual music fans going stream the artists you love on Spotify. I think even that kind of idea is a little bit gone now because people kind of understand mm. that's not really happening. But I think it does still happen for a lot of people. I would like to mention very briefly because I did see it this week. Um, there's a new Irish streaming service, independent Irish streaming service, which uses a user centric model. It's called Minim. M-I-N-M, and uh, I think it's M-I-N-M, hold on, M-I-N-M.co, so you can see that, Um, there's a lot of, uh, there's quite a lot of Irish music on already, uh, I see, so, um, yeah, interesting that that's happening as well, and it kind of feeds in with the idea that you don't actually need, uh, it's a making a conscious decision to support a local platform in some way, whether that's a local musician's, um, or local artists or local publication. So I do believe that's uh, very interesting. And Resonate.is was the other one that we mentioned there as well as, along with Bandcamp, of course, which is, you know, uh, maybe maybe needs to be said more often that Bandcamp, if you do buy something from it, does have a little app that you can stream music from on your phone mm-hmm. or whatever. So yeah, very useful, very, very useful. So yeah, um, I presume we will turn, we will uh, return to this topic at some point um, soon, but uh, yeah, hope you found something of interest there. Okay. Thanks everyone. We'll All see right. you next week when we'll be at uh, Blackgate in Galway. Yeah. So next week our, uh, we're doing a special from Blackgate in Galway and uh, we'll tell you all about what Blackgate is and what they do next week. All right. See ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.